Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's uh, Monday night here. I'm just starting late, coming back from a wedding. Um, and the truth is, maybe I should wait till tomorrow. I'll do it now. I'll do the history podcast now. It's being sponsored. Um, by Ari and Heather uh, Elbaum. Uh, Heather just lost, I guess, an uncle. In memory of Aaron Ben Yaakov, who Shloshim just ended, it said, who was born in 1931, so he's not a young man, in Dembitz, Poland. It says between Tarnov and Zhezhov, that's uh, Galicia. In the late 30s, he was bullied and beaten up in school by, Jewish, by Polish students. Well, yeah, what else is new? The 30s was when the Polish anti-Semitism uh, ratcheted up constantly. Finally, he came with his family in June of 39 when a ship called the Pilsowski. He says, well, imagine that. So he's very lucky. They got out literally the day before, you know, the war started September 1. So they got out in June of 39. On the last Polish ship, Pilsowski is a Polish ship. It was the last peacetime voyage of the ship. The ship was torpedoed a few months later off of England. Just imagine that. You know, but they meanwhile, this family had already landed successfully. Set on the Lower East Side, he was a gentle person, always with a smile, who lived his life with someone who was committed to helping others. I didn't know him, though he didn't have much and never married. Whenever he had a request for Zadaka, he always sent back money in an envelope. These are the old school virtues. <clears throat> so, we, these are the old school virtues. So, I'm sorry, and uh, some should have an Aliyah, Aaron Ben Yaakov. Um, I want to talk about something, maybe Rambo a little bit tonight. And that is, I did last week, I was going to do a bio, and then something came through my mind, which is the same thing that happened last week. I'm just going to pursue it. Uh, I did last week the uh, that book I read from uh, Hirschsprung, probably Hirschsprung. And I told you I was carried away or enchanted with the description he had in Shavel, because that's where my family is from, my father's side. And in, in late 39, early 40, which I thought was a wonderful story that Robert Hirschman wrote. And he talked about meeting the Rav there and having the meeting in his house and this and that and the other. And that led me to think about the last Rabbi of Shalva, the last Rav, who was a famous person back in the day, but it's not so well known today, Rabbi Boxed, Aaron Yossi Boxed. And I'm not going to go through a whole biography of him, although I could spend an hour doing that. I just don't feel like it. But, um... Instead, talk about the difficulty sometimes when we get famous people, especially famous rabbis, of putting together competing narratives, um, especially when some are hagiographical on the one hand and some are like anti-from on the other. And so ordinarily you think the truth lies in the middle objective one, beloved Davka, but it's very interesting how these things turn out. Now, so for our purposes, I'll call him our hero tonight. Rabbi Aaron Box, Aaron Yosef Boxed, who uh, was a rabbi in Shavuot in the last years, 10 years before the war. He had a lot of positions beforehand. And as I said before, he was a famous person in the day, but unusual. Normal, regular people don't become famous usually. 
You have to have something unusual about you. Now here, we're talking about somebody, let's see, he was born in uh, in the 1860s, early 60s. Let's say 1862, and let's say he died in 41. The Germans killed him. Hitler when he came in. Uh, so what does that give you? 60 to 40, he's almost 80. That's a long life. Now, um, and then a very tragic and sad end, like to all of Lithuanian Jewry. Now, um, listen closely. Here's somebody who's a product of the Muslim movement, sort of. Uh, what I mean is the following. Hold on one second. Hey, sorry, I got interrupted. Um, but here's somebody, let, let me frame it this way. Here's somebody, if he's born in the 1860s, then he lived at the time what we would call the rise of the Litvish Yeshiva as a special, specific movement in Jewish history, which is still with us in, in one fashion or another today. That's a very distinct phenomenon. Not all yeshivas in Lithuania were Litvish yeshivas. And I'm speaking specifically of the context of an ideological yeshiva, and that's associated with the Muslim movement in the Altar of Slobodka. So no, it's not with Belozhin, other yeshivas, Kolos, that were Kloises that were there before, but um, which is super Litvish, but they weren't the same thing. But rather a movement that arose in the context of modernity as a counter-modern movement. And where the Musr was, among other things, an ideology of counter-modernity. And that's very interesting. This is really associated with the Altar Slobodka. And our hero today had a funny, interesting role in all that. <laughs> At least I think. And I'll tell you why I say it that way. As I said, I was reading this uh, uh, Hirschman last week and I read about the rub there. <clears throat> and my father told me a little bit about uh, they passed away many years ago. And um, since I mentioned it also in Shul, so a guy in my Shul, Rabbi Semenowitz, brought me a book called the Ivia book. So Rabbi Aaron Bakst was born in Ivia, even though he learned elsewhere and became rabbis in other cities. Ivia is a town not too far from Vilna. It's in Belarus, Litvish, you know. I was actually there for five minutes a couple of years ago. Some of you may be familiar with the fact that Chaim Moise was born there, things like that. And the town was wiped out in Hitler's time. And as it, and this guy, Rabbi Semenowitz, his family is originally from there. And so he's into that. And after the Holocaust, I'm, I'm sure many of you are familiar, one of the things that happened after the Holocaust was that survivors in different places, usually not in Europe, wrote these Yisker books, in which they tried to preserve the memory of the town that was exterminated by recording whatever they, by memory or by documentation or things like that. That's it, there are hundreds of them. You used to see them at the Hebrew College all the time. You know, the Shnebeshek book, the Pebeshek book, the, 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 you know, little Yampol, this, uh, every town that they had people who survived in America or Israel, or maybe in South America, they would put together even Hebrew and Yiddish, a kind of Yisker book, with articles, you know, contributed by people from that area about things that happen to personalities. Usually they're not from, but some of them have from in it, and some of them are very interesting combinations of from plus not from, because after all, both sides lost people in the Holocaust. So this is a book about Ivia, and he showed me an article about Iron Lake Box, Iron, uh, excuse me, Iron uh, Yose Box, who was a native from there, even though he didn't live there. And I read his two pages, 
It's called Sefer Zichron Lekehel Sevia. And it must be a very from guy because it's called Harav Agon Rabari Yosef Bak Zechir Tanak Lebrocha. That's a from way of writing. So anyway, the point he's trying to make is like this. This person I'm talking about emerged as one of the great frummies of all time. But, like I mentioned with Hunter Wasman, that doesn't mean <clears throat> that when you're young, you have interests that are not outside Gemar, Gemar, Gemar. If Hunter Wasman was into Kant, don't surprise that somebody else is into this. Now listen closely to the years, and I'll just paint a little bit the picture. I don't want to go to a long thing tonight. He's born, let's say, in 1862. That means when he's growing up, it's the 1870s. 1870s, in my opinion, I would call it the peak years of the Haskalah in Russia. Uh, that was the Hebrew Haskalah, which attempted to create an alternative culture um, and was in Hebrew, Jewish, and was very Mosheikh, particularly for Yeshiva guys. What Yeshivas were there that time, mainly Volozhin and a few other places like that. That's what it was. In the 1860s, 1870s, there still was the leftovers of the old system in which, like in Hasidic areas, every town had a base matters. Not many kids went to something formal with a yeshiva, with a program, with a curriculum, with a mashkiach and all that. That was usually for Yechidi school. Most those who were learning learned in the local base matters in their little town. And the local people would bring them sandwiches, food, whatever they, tea, you know. More or less. And it was a hot-plop system. From this emerged some famous gadola who just decided on their own that they wouldn't have a, a plan and cover shots or cover this, that, and the other. Or some math comes to mind. But most people just learn, 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 and then you stop, and then you got, went to work, you know, or you got married or something like that. As is the case, a lot of people spend all their lives in learning, Interestingly, you know, they don't turn out to be any big deal. Right? Today, things are slightly different, thanks, and maybe more than slightly different, thanks to Dafyomi, number one, which takes all everybody through Shas, and thanks, number two, to these really cool Dafyomi givers, especially these big guys that have thousands of people listening. So that's a revolution. They're making the Gamora available. You know, and, and even, uh, you know, some of the raid in ways that wasn't there before. Plus, of course, you have the art school, you have the Masifta, and so forth. So we really are living in different times. But imagine 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 300 years ago, and a guy is whatever age, and he's learning until he's no longer learning. You got to get a job, gets married, whatever. So what do you learn? I don't know, Baba Khan, but see, all this, all that. You know what I mean? It doesn't all come together necessarily. Now, he's a Ben Torah. He's certainly with time, Talmud Torah, and all the rest of it. But only a few, the talented tenth, you know, get to have all heck of emerges significant Talmud Chacham and all that. It's from that talented tenth <clears throat> came the rabbis that Dayanim and all that sort of thing. That was the old system. Problem is, by the time you get to the middle of the 19th century, the era of Yisrael Salanter, so the Haskalah is making it that the Gemara is all boring. The Haskalah stuff is more interesting. And so little by little, people pull away from A and go into B. That's what freaked out Rishwal Salanter. And that led him to try to create the Muslim movement, not simply as Tikkun Amidas, but also 
to give a um, what's the right word? A charge to the religious studies and and to people's amuna, and to serve as a counterforce against what he saw as the negative trends of the Haskalah. Okay, but he's also under never made yeshiva or anything like that. He just operated on his own basis because he wasn't from yeshiva background. I believe that we saw. I think I'm right that Yisrael Santer never went to yeshiva. I think that's right. Right? That's what I'm trying to say. He came up through the system I just described. He was a genius. Uh, you know, at a young age, he started with a big goal. So he's the talented tense. But usually, it wasn't necessarily like that. Uh, his disciples tried to carry the ball forward each in his own way. <clears throat> None of them were really able to succeed. It was the Altar of Slobodka, I would say, generally speaking, most people would say, that found the right way. Uh, uh, how should I put it? He, uh, you know, smite around till he found the right way. And that's the modern Lithuanian yeshiva of the sort that started with Slobodka, but then, you know, the others either were influenced by Slobodka or taken over by Slobodka or something like that. You know, that became the model. They called the Musa Yeshiva. But the point isn't simply to be a nice person and learn Masil Sharon. The point is to have a counter-modern ideology so that you're um, given a shot, an inoculation, against the dangers of atheism that come from modernity. Um, that's more or less what happened. Now, that means that the Altar Sabatka was a people that not so many people know too much about him. And the only detailed biography that I'm aware of at all would be the Tenuasa Musar. And, you know, which is based on a lot of um, memories and things like that. Uh, I mean, there were people there. Rabbi Ruderman was a Talmud for his old rest of, in, in, in his later years. But listen closely. The altar was born in 1849. Um, so when our hero was born, he was like 13 years old. 1862. Um, he, and the altar, like many young people, was once upon a time not an altar. <laughs> and he got married, and he lived wherever he lived, Kelm or something. And by the 1870s, right, he learned with the altar of Kelm, 1870s, he started to form his own ideas of creating what emerged as eventually, after many um, you know, changes of clothing, the Velashen Yeshiva that you and I are familiar with, which again became the, the, the ancestor of, you know, all these other Yeshivas, Chamberlain, Ner Israel, and Hebron, and so forth. Now, um, with this counter-modern ideology sort of built into the curriculum and the whole business of a Mashkiach as a major figure, uh, ideological figure, it's, it's interesting stuff. Now, that means that the key years would be the 1870s and the early 80s. I'm not going to do justice to this now, but I'm just going to touch on Russia Prakram. Uh, the 1870s was with the height of the appeal of the Haskalah. And I might say that it's a time when the Haskalah went pretty radical. Uh, without going through a whole big arichas, there was a guy, Lillian Bloom, and he wrote this thing called Orchus Talmud in the late 1860s which he said, the whole Gemara's baloney, and that evoked a whole a literary war where all these rabbis wrote against him, 
because there was a from newspaper called Halavonan. There's a guy, Gideon Kent Nelson, wrote a whole book on this. And uh, I think, in my opinion, the author was smart enough to perceive that engaging in polemics is actually counterproductive. You understand? Are you going to go today? Some people will disagree with me, but they're wrong. Suppose the reform rabbi comes out and says this, that, and the other. You can have, a, you know, once upon a time you have the Jewish observer and this, and that, and the other, all argue against them. And so What's the point? Matter of fact, you actually give him the credit. It, you're helping him. The most effective thing is to just totally ignore it. You understand? Know and do your own thing. I think experience has demonstrated that in the last 50 years. Now, this more or less was Mahal Chodalter Sabbat, as I understand it. And in the 1870s, he was engaged in the project, as I said before. And he's a young man, he's in his 20s. Because he's born in 1849, he's not 30 till 1879. Of trying to get money together, and in this little basement, it's here and there, and covenant, whatever, put together a place where he's going to, where where he'll run it the way he wants to run it, and the young guys will be exposed to his type of musr, and it'll be an effective thing, not only for Tikkun Aminus, but also as a countervailing force against the Haskalah. Later, in the 1880s, things changed because of the pogroms that emerged in 1881 and 1882, and that led to change to the Haskalah and Zionism and all the rest of it. That's not what I want to concentrate on. Uh... Now here I'm going to share with you two different narratives. And this is the problem that happens when you read these big rabbis in Gedolim. If I'm interested in the bio of Aaron Yosef Box, where do I go? Nobody wrote stuff on him. Not really. Except the Tanuos HaMosu, that five-volume business from Dove Cats. Okay. He's telling over what he heard. Because he lived in Israel. And he'll say that Aaron Yosef Box was a close Talmud of the altar and of the it's a Petterberger because the altar and it's a Petterberger worked hand in hand in the 1870s and 80s. That's actually what caused the the counter the revolution against Musser. That's a whole thing by itself. Pullman's on Musser, as they call it. And he was a Talmud of the altar of Kelm, and there are stories about that and so forth. Then I'm reading this book, or this two-page business, from um, the Ivia book, which may be baloney, or may not. It's a memory thing. That whoever's writing after the Holocaust is going by local talk. This is what people said in Ivia. And it said that he was an Eloy from early age, and he learned in, in Volozhin and Slobotka, that's kind of true. You know, he was he he obviously was an Eloy. We wouldn't be talking about him. He did go for a while to Volusian. So somebody's learning locally, so he's like fourteen years old, that would put you at eighteen seventy-six. Then he's in Volusian for a little while. But he's not staying in Volusian, which is interesting. Why not? Volusian is where you went if you want to become a big rough. He ends up in Kovna in Slobodka, which is a suburb of Kovna. Kovna. And he's from the first boys he puts over he's learning in Slobodka. The Slobodka Yeshiva didn't exist in the eighteen seventies. He means the first beginnings of 
a group of guys, the altar gets together in, in a, base, a certain base medrash, then eventually over the course of time, a number of years, evolves to what you and I would call the Sabbat Yeshiva. So he's interested in the Musa. And he said, Mesaprin, which means Mizak, Shabalam de Bishiba Slabotki Yatsa called Sha'ara Nifis Laminas Vakaris from Khatsonian. So here is a boy who's in his late teens and he's reading Sfarm Khatsonian. Who knows what that means? Is it like like we have a Khanawasman and he's reading Kant, I doubt it. But he's reading, you know, non Torah books. And it's the 1870s when this stuff was really hot as a very controversial topic. Guys were dropping right and left. So he was afraid to alter that this guy is going to go up to Derech. So he sent him to Simchazizel, who I don't think was in Kelm at that time. Maybe he was. You know, he had his own he was in Kelm and in Grobin and this place and that place. It doesn't matter. <laughs> now, in the Tunus HaMusser, he's described as one of his leading disciples. Listen to what it says here, which is very interesting to me. Ulam Reb Simcha Zissel Tal Kankano Moshech Yad Mimenu. Reb Simcha Zissel checked him out and that's game what you and I would call a hair or a conversation. And pulled out. No, I don't want this guy by me. I can't. Ain't lo takana. Shalom akurav. So, Simchazitzel's, you know, close advisor said, "Why?" Okay, said, "I call kavuchot." I mean, you tell me he's beyond repair. What do you mean? Is he? Is it I mean, you know, how bad is it? He read a few books. Why do you say he's beyond repair? And Simchus also said, I'll tell you what I mean when I say he's beyond repair. And here you have different approaches to Chinuch, especially in the Bali Musr, especially in the Shiva uh, uh, culture of once upon a time. And Simchus is supposed to have said, Darki, listen closely, Darki My Mahalach is an educator. Eb Simchus is the author of Kelm is famous for being an educator. He created Talmud Torah. He made eventually a school. By the way, a school which had English and Hebrew. But most of it was Musser. It's a, inter- a very unusual type of place. It didn't last. But from that came Dessler and all the others. And by the way, the author of Sabaka learned in that school. This is my educational philosophy. It's remarkable. I take these boys when they come into my school, I break them apart, I break them apart into their different Avarim, and then I reassemble them. So literally, it means I tear all their limbs apart. And then I replace it in a way that suits me, like a Picasso picture. The right arm is coming out of the nose, left arm is coming out of the foot, you know, like that. Now, of course, he doesn't mean it that way, but he means spiritually, get it? I take their mitos, their their whole way of thinking, their personality, I guess you'd say, and I rearrange it. Uh, and that's what I do. Ar- Archikzu, this boy, Aaron Yosef Box, 
Barisamkahu. I understand that to mean he's a Barisamkahu. Notice he was the only mature guy. And he's a self-assured guy. Veno Nitlash Bossi. He won't, I can't pull him apart. Isn't that interesting? I tried to break apart his 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 avar. And I see they cannot be reassembled. Which therefore means, as I understand, he's already a formed person, and I cannot unform and reform again. This is a quite a remarkable story. Um it does sound like a simplicity of the altar of Kelm, who did have this kind of educational philosophy of to him being a dictator and guiding very stark the boys with these long schmoozes and he would rip them apart if they deviated from the rules. I mean, this was a sheet of his, you understand? And you're supposed to not look at outside the window. You get canas if you do. And all kinds of things like that. With the purpose of, I guess, in his opinion, breaking the bad meters and turning them all into Bali Musa Yerema Shleiman. But in order to do that, I have to kill you and make Tchirisamesim on you as a different person. Now you come to my school expecting to be killed, and then being revived as a different person, under my hashbah. This, my friends, is the philosophy of the military. Right? The philosophy of the military. You take an army, but you have all kinds of different people. This guy can read, this one can't. This one's from a farm, that one's from a city. This guy's an Irishman, that guy's Italian. You know, how are you supposed to make them into a, a unit that they follow orders, they cohere, they come together, each part does its, its role in the battlefield and off the battlefield? I guess it reminds me of what a famous American general said in the First World War, Orion, where he said, quote, the soldier must be so trained that he becomes a mere automaton. He must be so trained that will destroy his own initiative. He must be so trained that he's turned into a machine. The soldier must be forced into the military noose. He must be jacked up. He must be ruled by his superiors with a pistol in hand. Now, that is um, a grub way, a military way of talking about it. That's not the altar of Kelman's not talking about that. But emotionally and hashkafu-wise, he's talking about that. And so the idea is you come to my school full of whatever you have, and we'll get rid of all that. We'll give your brain a rinse, right? And we'll start all over again, and we'll teach you the right hashkafas. If you don't agree with my hashkafas, don't come to my school. And so according to this, our hero came to the school, obviously not as such a young man, and he said that he's, he's, he's too far gone. Now, I don't know if that's a true story or not, because, um, well, let me say this. And so the result would be that he would leave here and go back to the altar. And then the story would go as I would reconstruct it. And the altar, he's found a different approach because the altar did not believe in this kind of way. But rather you take the person as they are and don't try to rearrange them and work with them in a more subtle way to find out what the Yitzhotomi Yitzhahar is and accent the first and, and uh, you know, decrease the second. So if a guy was good in history, you wouldn't tell him to you know give up history. To find a way to use it for from. If a guy was into science, figure some way to use it for from. It would help out the learning, not to replace the learning, help out learn. That's my understanding, and 
even in the Tumas of Musr, if you read the part about the Altar of Slobodkin, he's the only one who has a, a long, sustained biography, written in the 50s, he'll say that during these years, not much what we're talking about, late 1870s, uh, when the Altar of Kelm set up this new school, uh, uh, implementing his his educational philosophy, this militaristic educational philosophy. So, the altar Nelson Sri Finkel was there as like assistant principal. Listen to this: That part of the story of the altar of Kelm, who was a disciple of Shlomo was he set up a certain system in Kelm, the Talmud Torah there. And it was just not identical with the yeshiva as a super Muslim place. The local people didn't like it and they were marshaling him to the Russian government. By the time it's over, he fled there and he moved to Latvia near the ocean, uh, near the sea in Grubin. And he set up in Latvia, was outside the pale settlement, even though it's the Russian Empire. And the type of Jews there was more Matim. And he set up this new model school and he brought. Nelson Sweet Finkel, we called the Alter Sabaki, was a young man at that time. At the time I'm talking about, he'd be 27 years old, to join him as his assistant principal. Over of Nelson Sweet, Biachadim, Simchazisel, Grabin, Mishimishka, Ozer, Banhol, Samosa, assistant principal. Ulam, Lo Tamid, Hishtabu, Deosem, Bashid, Hussein, Hachinuchios. That's what he writes in Sefer Tunus and Musser. They didn't see eye to eye in their. This is amazing. You have a, a disciple and a master because the altar of Sabaka learned by, 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 by the Simchazisel. That was his Rebbe. But obviously, he didn't rearrange him because, which is true, he didn't because he came and joined him later in life. Because they didn't agree in their educational philosophy. And even though these are two great people, both super from and so both super balamusser, but in their chinuch approach, as we would say today, they did not see eye to eye. This, by the way, for those who are interested, is in the third chelik of the Tzuros um, Musser, page nineteen. They don't only see eye to eye, and chelukah is hashkavus benim. Rav Nosson Tzvi, Lo Himshich Zman Rab Gavrin. Therefore, he didn't last in his role as assistant principal too long. For Avar Liyasid Moses Torah Biyosos Atzon, and he went on to leave there and try to found different Mosdos Biyosos Atzon in his own initiative. And of course, what it means is in his own style, and that eventually, as you and I know, became what you and I refer to as Slabodka. It started in a small. Base manage, etc., etc. Okay? Uh, so this is uh, quite remarkable because then it would imply that what happened was that after this bad experience with the altar of Kelm, our hero, Baron Yose Box, went back to the altar. And there he met a different style who didn't try to break him apart and reassemble him but worked with him in his own strengths. And as we'll see later on, if I have time, 
he emerged as a major rabbi and a major, uh, uh, how should I put it, speaker, Muslim speaker, orator, and so forth, which is why he had a lot of famous rabbinic positions. And uh, the style of the altar was more along those lines. Um, if you look at the uh, famous Ma'oris HaGadolin, which are sort of like the outcome the Hasidic tales and Litvish Yeshivas, which means that they have all these stories of the famous Bali Musa and those types. It's quite good. It was written right after the Holocaust by these Novartikers. So, if you really, again, I repeat, if you're interested in the person of the Alter of Sobolka, not just the fluff you read in the magazines and stuff, but more, you know, real. So you have to do the Tunos and Musa, and what is the place you want to read? Is the Oris Hagadola, which is paragraph after paragraph, full of these stories. An unusual guy, and he says that his style. By the way, he lived in the dorm. His family wasn't with him for years. Till later, you know, he he wanted to be with the boys. There's a much be a very unusual type. He actually created the new model of yeshiva, which is founded and run by a mashkiach. And the Rosh Yeshiva is hired and fired, which is the opposite of what usually is. Usually yeshiva is the Rosh Yeshiva, and he hires and fires mashkiachim. But here was different. Here was different. And one of the things it says is, Lolimin of Sobkarabla Talmidim, that he didn't um, lead the boys, the students, like a rav to students, you have to go this way. But he used this genius, educational genius, speaking in a gentle voice, which means not speaking directly and telling somebody it's bad, but trying to speak indirectly and so forth. Until the person realizes on his own, what we call in English enlightenment which is the highest madrig of education. If you have, for example, a bad habit, let's say, for example, smoking, just making it up. If you come to the Kelm, uh, they'll say, yes, you stop smoking right now, and I'm going to turn you into a person to hate smoking. Uh, that's one way. But deep down, you don't. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? That's like Navardic. Deep down, you don't. I think I told you the story of President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, I've said many times, I read a book by, years ago, uh, by Jack, uh, J- Joseph Califano, who was his uh, close aide, later on was a cabinet officer under Carter, big lawyer, Italian guy, and a very good writer, you know, Harvard Law, and he says the following story, which sounds like a muster for it, that Lyndon Johnson, who was the President of the United States, was a Texas senator, hard drinking, hard smoking. And when he was a senator, he was a very powerful senator. He's legendary. And very domineering. And he smoked and drank. I mean, the guy drank two bottles of booze every night. Cutty sark. Who knows what he smoked. So sure enough, when his 50s, he got a big heart attack. I think it was 1955. Big heart attack. And almost killed him. And the doctor told him, you can either have a career or you can smoke. And so much did he want to have a political career 
They gave up the smoking. The iron will, the drinking he kept up, but the smoking gave up. And, by the way, he came from a family with heart trouble and so forth. And five years went by. They were the powerful senator. And then he became vice president of the United States under Kennedy. And when Kennedy was shot, he became president on his own in the 60s. So he reached the top. He became the president. He was even elected in 64. And then he went through the four years of president. Then he's out. Nixon came in. And as you know, um, presidency changes every four years, January 20th at, at 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And so this guy was with him to the end. And comes 12 o'clock, Nixon is sworn in. Johnson is vice president. He's going to go back to Texas. So this guy, Califano, says, I wanted to show him I'm not a fair weather friend. I was only interested in kissing up to you in the White House. Even now that you're out of the office, I still am your friend. I still hold from you. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to fly back with you to Texas to show that, you know, I really like you. But Kachava, so he said he got into the plane to take him back to Texas. And now Johnson is no longer the president. It's 14 years since his heart attack. As soon as he got on the plane, he pulled out a cigarette and started smoking. In other words, he had his career, and now the heck with it. If he drops dead, he drops dead, and sure enough, four years later, he died. I think he was only 62. What does that mean? He didn't, he didn't break him apart and reassemble him. He suppressed the Yitzhar deep, but the Yitzhar was still there. You see? Now, the other way, if you can attain this, it's very hard. And that's what Dr. Sabukta strove for, as I understand it was to get the person one day to realize, you know, this smoking is messing up my life. I don't want to do it anymore. May ask me. I realize it's bad. There's not somebody external. It's from internal realization. That's like the highest Madrigan. Okay? And therefore, our hero would have gone on to actualize his kochos, or whatever you want to call it, and then go on to be a big rabbi in this place and that place and the other place. The only reason I ever heard about him is he wasn't able to start a big yeshiva. He started little yeshivas. Wherever he was, started yeshivas, 20, 30, 40, 50 guys. And uh, it didn't take off in the way that, you know, Slobodka or Tells or you know, whatever, communists or these things took off. It was a local thing. Uh, and that's why you probably never heard of him. But he was a big guy in his day. And he was a tremendous orator. And the Tanuas and Musard says that one of his shtick for the oratory that people used to like him, which I imagine is how they elected him to be the rabbi in Shavu. I don't know. Happened in 1929. I happen to know that Shavu was uh, the second biggest town in uh, Lithuania, in the Republic of Lithuania, because Vilna and those places were part of Poland at that time because of the borders and the wars and everything. Okay, one second. I'm pulling up the Evo site because a lot of times they have the latest research, um, the most up-to-date research of the figures. And according to this, in the 20s and 30s when my father lived there, it was a town of 8,000, 9,000, let's say. It had been much earlier, bigger, but that's what it was. And of course they had, you know, all kind of, there were 15 shoals and uh, there were even a few Hasidim, a few, 
I'd be Lubavitch. And mostly, it would be, uh, I won't say mostly, imagine a town about 8,000. I have no idea, but I strongly suspect it was 50-50. 50 from, 50 not from. That's what I strongly suspect, because I know there was a very important non-from element. But there was also an important from element. They say over here in the Yiva there was a Yeshiva. I don't believe that is correct. I could be wrong. To the best of my knowledge, I don't know about that. Unless you're talking about like what he did to put together a small Yeshiva or something like that. Even though it was able to be bigger. If you listen to uh, what I read last week from Rabbi uh, Hirschsprung, when he talked about his Hasidic Yeshiva, moving it there, doesn't sound like they had any Yeshiva in Shavu. Uh, he was a great Rav and uh, why would they take him? Maybe the front put him in. I know he was an Agudanik. The Aguda was not so popular in Lita. He's one of the founders of the Aguda, actually. Sorry, Box. Uh, but he was a tremendous orator. Wherein lie his oratorical powers? First of all, he was a good orator. But I see in the Tumas of Musa, he says that one of his shtick was to do like Rabbi Victor Miller used to do, which means he knew a belt of Limudichol. Right? He knew a belt of Limudichol, which he used. Is from Mr. Speeches. I'll read you what it says over here. But uh, again, this is from the Tenuas of Volume Five. But in the in the broad public, this price of Iron Box Baker, but Amanuso Hanora of Achrosa Halakis Hafilosafis. In his Amunos Hanora, in his enlightened Amunah. In other words. Is my Monadian approach to Amuna, which is surprising. And by Karasal and in his philosophical understanding. He knew a lot of science. Well, where did he get that from? Where did he pick up the science? These are the books they were afraid of when he was young, you see. But Toldot Yisrael Bakarasolom, he knew history, Jewish history and, and world history. Now I don't know if this is true, I'm just reading what it says. He was interested in natural science. He was interested in different philosophies. So probably knew Marx and all this the way Rabbi Hirschman talks about last week. It ain't the world we exactly imagined. But he used all this as part of being a good speaker in a firm direction to prove the creator of the world. In his speeches, he would always throw in um, science, facts from throughout the cosmos. In other words, astronomy, and biology, and plants, and things like this. This was the style I remember when I was a kid. That was the style of Victor Miller. Uh, he used to talk in his Chobos Alvobos talks. Do you remember, some of you will remember this. I'm sure since he's dead, they, they must turn this all into, it must be all online in, in uh, recordings because everything he did was recorded. Maybe talk about, you know, all kinds of things of nature and, you know, little atoms or whatever. And the general idea is the broad harmony of the universe, cosmological argument from the Middle Ages, shows that there's a single intelligence behind there. And he goes on in all this in Hebrew. And interesting to me, he always used to throw into his speeches history, 
they knew the history of different nations and historical progression. Those historical trends. Now, if this is true, it's quite remarkable for a literature rob, who was in the Musar. Umar Gambembe and he would use this to demonstrate how God runs the world. Uh, this probably wasn't so hard to do in the first decades of the 20th century when the world was really turned upside down as far as a result of the First World War and the aftermath of the First World War. You know what I'm And all this is by way of Zechariah Mosul and being Shno Starvador. Okay? And even got into these things over here, he says in the footnote that, you know, the Torah says there's only a few, uh, what is it, Mafra Parsos over here, you know, uh, the Malagela in the Mafra's Parso, the Gomel, the Shofan Varnevis. You know, that whole business. The Torah says only three, and so meanwhile, science hasn't found three. And he says the British send an expedition to go check it out, and they didn't find anything. That kind of way of talking, which I see would really go over in Lithuania very well in the 1920s and 30s, even if you weren't so firm, right? Now, where do you pick all this up? This is the Lemuri Chol that the other one wanted to suppress, and the altar developed. That's That would be my understanding of it. It's okay to use this, provided you use it in the right way. Now, I have to say, though, that in this biography of his, which is a an essay, he describes him as one of the closest students of the Altar of Kelm, even though the other story was the Altar of Kelm says he's impossible. Okay? His master Kula Mishnoso Shab Simchazisabishkia called Libo Misam Shab Pa Meksham Sikhaso and Lohirgishalokis Mirvam. He was listening so stark to the Musashmoods that he banged the table and broke it. Right? And the Simchazisal said that he's going to be a girdle one day. So I don't know, you know, which is the real thing, which is not the real thing. Uh, is the truth somewhere in the middle? Welcome to the problems of trying to pull out the facts when you get contradictory, you know, memories. Because at the end of the day, when you have the kind of thing we're talking about, it's memories and not documents. What I mean to say is, the history of rabbis is usually not one that's documented. It's usually people tell over later on what they heard, or what they thought, or what they remember. And two different people remember the same thing in different ways. Besides hagiographical factors. So it's just... We'll never know, but it's interesting to me that he couldn't have been just a regular yeshiva guy who just gemara, 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 because where would he pick up all this extra stuff? Now, it's possible to say he picked it up later in life, but the fact that we have this oral tradition, whatever, the Sopran, from the survivors of Ivia, that, you know, they're afraid he's a Moscow and all the rest, because he must have been reading science books other books. Now, by the way, what, where did, did he read it in Russian? I, I doubt that very strongly. It must read in Hebrew and Yiddish. Those are, excuse me, those are the Haskalah books, you know. So it's always a question: What do you do with a guy in yeshiva who's interested in something else? There's no one answer for everything, but broadly speaking, there have always been two approaches along the lines that I just described today. One is to try to crush and suppress it, and declare it to be illegitimate, and therefore it's something you should get rid of. The way you do with a bad meetup, tell me, suppose a guy's into porn or something like that, what do you say, you know, oh, go and develop, but you can't, it's, it's a bad meetup, you know? You got, you know, you can't, there's, 
you got to get rid of it. On the other hand, is interest in, in science the same thing? Is interest in, in higher mass the same thing? These are interesting and complex questions. Uh, the Shivas, being certainly in America, are not in a position they might like to to totally eliminate all access to um, outside knowledge. It's one of the big problems we have today because a lot of the outside knowledge you get online is is indeed um, you know non-redeemable. It's, it's all bad. Other stuff not. And uh, again, the public wants to hear the 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 kind of I think the the kind of approach that Rabbi Box was propounding, uh, I think. Um, and so it, it lies in a very interesting question as an existential problem that cannot be solved. That is, what is the proper relationship between Torah and Limudik uh, Chol, shall we call it this way? Torah Limudik Chol. That is, when I say it's an existential question, by definition, it means there's no answer. There are answers. There are approaches. Uh, how this is going to play out in the future is is just a very interesting one. Uh, that's what I wanted to speculate on. I could go on about this, but I don't want to. I just thought it's an interesting case in which you have what seems to me um, contrasting uh, memories, because that's all they are. They're not documents. They're memories of a person who became very famous and popular, and both sides seem to be wanting to claim paternity or some in some way or another. And it also goes to show you that even under, under the greatest of the greats, and the people who are super Musri, because these are the main pe- people of the Tanoas and Musr, uh, the altar of Kelm, the altar of Slobodkan. You see a big chaluka deus, how it is that you approach boys, how you approach students. Uh, that's very interesting. And I imagine in Chinuch today, especially in Shivas, there are probably a lot of places that do like try to do like the Kelm business. And then there are other places that try to do like the altars of Slobodka business. Anyway, I just thought it's food for thought. And um, again, I want to thank Irene Heather. I pay tribute to the memory of the uncle who passed away. And as I said before, the Shamsha and Aliyah. With that, I bid you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.